This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Why Walk a Spiritual Path, recorded June 21st, 1998 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This is a question, a written question, didn't didn't quite make it to the question box. It came to me directly, but it would have gone to the question box. Uh, it was submitted by Karen. And let me read the question. So request for a Sunday talk. Please give a talk about what the spiritual path is, what it's all about, and why a person would choose to walk it. But here's the catch. You must imagine that you're talking to an intelligent, educated person who is a basic non-believer, an atheist or an agnostic, and a materialist, and who knows nothing basically about religion, spirituality, mysticism, or quantum mechanics. They may know a lot about art or history or politics, but they have avoided anything spiritual. In fact, they haven't even been into any kind of psychological or personal growth either. This imaginary listener is a decent, good, sane person, functioning successfully and even quasi-happily in the world. They haven't a clue why one of their friends has chosen to get involved in some kind of religious enterprise, or why anyone would. They think people who do are self-deluded. They've heard talk of enlightenment, but they don't really know what that means. They think spiritual activities and beliefs are mainly a case of seeking solace, security, and answers where none exist. Your job is to make clear to them <laughs> the what and why of spiritual seeking. Great question, Karen. Well, uh, it was very interesting uh, to me to get this question because Karen's hypothetical listener could have been me 20 years ago. Uh, I was certainly an atheist and very definitely a materialist, a hard-nosed materialist. I was uh, successful uh, career-wise. I was a Hollywood executive. I was quasi-happy for a period. I'd say more than quasi-happy. And I certainly viewed spiritual activities as deluded. Uh, this business of people being involved in spiritual activities, looking for answers where none exist, being kidding themselves, feeling uh, that these were sort of fairy tales and superstitions. Uh, I know that well. So this giving this talk is like giving a talk to my younger self. Sort of if I could go back in time to 1979, say, which is just before I went on a spiritual path, and look at myself and meet myself and try to explain to myself then what I know now, or at least my perspective now. And when I think about this, I must say I'm not sure I'd make any impression on me, the younger me, <laughs> because on top of all the things that Karen described about this hypothetical listener, I was also tremendously conceited and arrogant. And in fact, uh, if I had come to myself then as a teacher in a center like this, I would have, my younger self, I would have said to me, oh, get real, grow up, guys. Listen, you're 55 years old and you're still uh, uh, dabbling in fantasies and superstitions. Uh, this, you have to face life. So, although I don't know whether I'd make an impression, I will give it a try here. I must say, even uh, back then, 
I did have one quality I think that was a little different, uh, maybe than most people. And that was a real curiosity about, or even you could say, a passion for truth. This is something that surfaced in my life periodically. I didn't have it all the time. But uh, when I was an adolescent, I had gone to a Christian school. My parents weren't heavily religious, but I had gotten, gotten a good dose of Christianity. So as an adolescent, I rebelled against Christianity. I got interested in philosophy. I read Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian. Uh, I read David Hume, uh, I read Nietzsche, and I got interested in existentialism and so forth. There was always this sort of uh, curiosity or underlying uh, desire to find out what, what is really going on here, what's reality really all about. This passion for truth then sort of ebbed away uh, as I came out of adolescence, but then it, it surfaced again in a very personal way. When I was uh, 23, I went to Vietnam. I was drafted 24 hours in Vietnam. And when I got out of Vietnam, I had felt tremendously betrayed. Betrayed because all the things I had been taught about America uh, seemed to be no longer true. That we were uh, this idealistic democracy, particularly in Vietnam, that we were fighting oppression and so forth. And obviously, going to Vietnam, we weren't fighting some Nazis. We, in fact, were more like the occupying troops and we were fighting uh, peasants who just wanted the, their own independence. And then coming back from Vietnam, so I got involved with uh, the, the political radical movement of the 60s, and these uh, students were busy uncovering all these facts about the corporations and the government and their ties and this and that. And I was really just outraged at, at the duplicity that I felt had been uh, perpetrated here. Uh, so this was became then a passion for truth. Well, what is really going on? I want to know. How do things actually work? And I got interested in Marxism for a while, and I thought I found the truth there, and then I got disillusioned by that. Ultimately, I found that Marxism was uh, very astute in its analysis, but very naive in its ideals, where it was going. So as the 60s wound down, uh, I finally accepted the realities of life, as my parents had always wanted me to. I went to Hollywood uh, to make a career in Hollywood and uh, attain whatever happiness I could uh, in that way. <coughs> and in the beginning, it worked. My passion for truth abated. And partly it abated because by now I was really convinced I knew the truth. I was a convinced materialist, as I said. I held a materialist worldview, which I believed was based on science. And in that worldview, the cosmos is a big machine, basically. We human beings are nothing but biological organisms, and we're subject to all the laws of uh, biology and science and whatnot. There certainly was uh, uh, no God or spirituality or transcendent dimension or anything like that. And so the only real happiness you could have would be biological happiness, you know, first getting food, shelter, and those things, surrounding yourself with nice objects and whatnot. You could get some pleasure from art, uh, from good books, good movies, and so forth, and you could get some pleasure from relationships, psychological pleasure. Um, but that all fundamentally came down to genes and chemistry and hormones and things like that. So I was uh, more than just an agnostic. I was a a militant non-believer and a militant materialist, an atheist. 
But I think that also, though, this experience first um, uh, with Vietnam and then later with Marxism, there was still an underlying sort of apprehension about trying to build your life on falsehoods. I had tried to do that twice in a certain sense. The, in the beginning, uh, build my life on this ideal of America, and then uh, get, rebuild my life on a Marxist ideal, and, and those had not worked out for me. So I had this kind of uh, skepticism, and I would say this passion for truth really just went dormant. It was still there. Now, I describe this about myself, this personal history, because a large part of why I went on a spiritual path was a reawakening of this passion for truth. And I must say, in my observation, uh, most people don't really have it. Uh, most people are willing to just accept the received views of their culture, whether that be the views of the priests or the theologians or the philosophers or the scientists, the uh, academicians, the educators, and so forth. Uh, you know, they read in Time magazine or Newsweek, and there's a worldview uh, beneath all those articles, a materialist <laughs> worldview, and that's just accepted, and people don't really bother to question much. We get pressured into not questioning by, by our parents and our teachers and so forth, who by and large don't want us to rock the boat, just go along with the program and get a good job and get married and have a family or whatever, you know, just do what the, the script says you should be doing. So, I think a passion for truth is an important motive why people do go on a spiritual path, a true spiritual path. And I don't think actually that many people uh, have it, or maybe they have it, but maybe they don't have the uh, courage to really act on it. And so if you have a friend who's out there uh, on a spiritual path, I think it's important to recognize that that is part of the motive for it. And even if you're not all that interested, it is a legitimate motive. If there is such a thing as progress in human history, it comes from people with a passion for truth, scientists or whatever, wanting to get out there and are willing to rock the boat and ask the impertinent questions. Somebody said you only get pertinent answers when you ask impertinent questions. So then what, what have I said to myself, my younger self, 20 years ago at this time when I was a materialist? Well, I would have said to myself, Joel... You hold this materialist worldview because you believe it's based on science, and you believe in science. But are you sure materialism is scientific? Have you ever heard of quantum mechanics and the quantum revolution that has been unfolding in physics for the last 75 years or so? Well, gee, no. But it can't be uh, that different from what's been going on. I read the science page in Newsweek magazine uh, every week. Uh, nothing seems to have changed much. Well, maybe you should look into this. For instance, here's what the founder, or one of the founders of quantum mechanics, Werner Heisenberg, wrote. He says, quantum theory has led the physicists far away from the simple materialistic views that prevailed in the natural science of the 19th century. And then speaking of the critics of quantum mechanics, because when it was first unveiled, you know, it was caused an uproar within, within the circle of scientists and physicists because it was so uh, radical. In fact, Niels Bohr, another uh, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, says, if you aren't shocked when you first hear about quantum mechanics, you haven't understood it. So then Heisenberg says of the critics, it would, in their view, be desirable to return to the reality concept of classical physics, or to use a more general philosophical term, 
to the ontology of materialism. They would prefer to come back to the idea of an, of an objective real world whose smallest parts exist independently of whether or not we observe them. This, however, is impossible. What, what do you mean there's not an objectively real world whose parts exist independently of whether we observe them? Well, this is what quantum mechanics, uh, the conclusions you have to draw from quantum mechanics. Niels Bohr, the co-founder of quantum mechanics, said, an independent reality in the ordinary physical sense can neither be ascribed to the phenomena nor the agencies of observation. In other words, the phenomena, like this clock, or the agencies of observation, like me, neither of us exist independently. Somehow there's, it's all dependent on each other, the subject and the object. Now, I, I gotta stress, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg are not some sort of flaky scientists off in the corner there. These people were at the heart of the revolution. They invented it. They are considered the greatest scientists of this century, next to uh, Einstein and uh, Schrodinger. He was the third founder of quantum mechanics. Here's a Nobel laureate, Eugene Wigner, explains this problem further. He says, through the creation of quantum mechanics, the concept of consciousness came to the fore again. It was not possible to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics in a fully consistent way without reference to consciousness. So, somehow, quantum mechanics is intimately tied in with consciousness. Now, in a materialist worldview, consciousness is an epiphenomena of matter. Epiphenomena means sort of a byproduct. It doesn't have any real substantial existence. Everything is reducible down to little uh, chemical and electronic reactions going on in the brain. You know, this gray matter is going ch -ch 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 like a computer. And so consciousness is somehow uh, this sort of fluff on top of that. This is in the materialist point of view. Consciousness doesn't exist as some, as some sort of reality. Now, it's also interesting that the whole uh, time that materialism did hold sway over the intelligentsia of the Western world, nobody ever explained how this gray matter ever produced consciousness. And to this day, those who cling to the materialist paradigm can't explain that. But uh, nevertheless, quantum mechanics tells us that material objects have no physical existence. They don't exist in space at any definite place until they appear in consciousness. Somehow, our observations create distinctions in a reality which itself has no distinctions. <clears throat> Here's what Berkeley physicist Nick Herbert uh, says about this. He says, another way to look at quantum systems is to think of such systems as seamless wholes, in order to measure such a system, one is obliged to break that wholeness, to cut open the apple of knowledge, as it were. How we make the necessary cut determines, in part, how that system will appear to our eyes. But unobserved, the system has no cuts at all, and is, in a sense, indescribable by conventional means. So he's saying that unobserved reality has no cuts, it's a whole, there are no distinctions in it. It's we who impose distinctions in it, and the way we 
uh, distinguished determines how all the stuff appears to us. Now, some people uh, want to dismiss all the implications of quantum mechanics because they think it only applies to little subatomic particles. And they say, oh, well, that's well and good, uh, you know, off in the laboratory where the, where the physicists are, you know, uh, breaking atoms apart and studying um, uh, traces in a bubble chamber and all that. But what is, it doesn't have anything to do with our world, the world we live in. But actually, that's not true. If you, if you have a scientific view of the world, because if I take this uh, uh, cup, this cup is made up of subatomic particles. It's not made up of anything else. There's masses of them, so it seems to behave in a much more consistent way than one little electron. It's uh, a little bit like watching your television, where the images are created actually by these electrons. You don't see all the, the electron activity, you just see more or less solid-looking images on your screen. But if you looked at it though, with a microscope or something, you would see all these little dots going off. So there's nothing in the world that isn't described, in the world of matter, that isn't described by quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the science of today, and it's the foundational science of today. Here's what uh, Roland Omnes writes. Quantum mechanics is itself a foundation for all of physics and chemistry which themselves enter as building blocks in all the other sciences. Though so all of science was thereby reduced to this approach to the status of what happens in the consciousness of one or several observers. So we're not talking about some little specialized arcane field out here. We're talking about modern science, the foundations of modern science, and the description of reality. Now, I must say here, quantum mechanics does not itself prove the validity of a spiritual path. So it's not, it's not to say if you read quantum mechanics, you're on a spiritual path, or that proves that you're right to be on a spiritual path, but it does disprove materialist worldview. Materialist worldview is not compatible with modern science. It, it cannot be. It cannot exist. It is wrong according to science. Now, a lot of people still hold the materialist worldview. As I did 20 years ago, Joel, you hold a materialist view. Yes, I do. Don't you realize that your view is as outdated as a Earth-centered universe before Copernicus? In terms of science, it is. It's exactly the equivalent of my going around insisting, you know, I don't care what these scientists say, the Earth is the center of the world. I can see the sun rise and set every day. Don't tell me the sun is the center. Yeah, I could cling to that view, but that's about as, as far off as I would be from science if I, if I want to claim that I hold a scientific view as it is to hold on to materialism. That's a little bit like uh, I used to view religious fundamentalists, you know, they're, they're clinging to this worldview that's out of date. For, for what reason? I don't know. They have this blind belief, faith, dogma. Well, I had the same sort of blind belief, faith uh, in the materialist worldview, and it was just nothing but a, an outdated dogma, as Werner Heisenberg said, left over from the last century. So that might have shaken me up a little bit, because I did not like to think of myself as a dogmatist, or certainly not having any, just following something for blind faith, just because other people said that that was the case because uh, I always prided myself on being an independent thinker and investigate for myself and so forth.
So if, if my younger self were here today, I would say this. I would say we don't have time to go into all the fascinating paradoxes that quantum mechanics raises. And they are, even if you're not on a spiritual path, if you're interested in any of this, it is, really is fascinating. Uh, but go investigate for yourself. Just stop uh, assuming uh, the materialist worldview is the scientific worldview. And you can start with some very accessible books. Uh, one is called The Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukoff. That's still readily available in paperback. Uh, very accessible to lay people. You don't have to know anything about uh, calculus or complicated equations or anything. Uh, another one is called Quantum Reality by Nick Herbert, who I quoted earlier. Again, that's quite available. And then uh, In Search of Schrodinger's Cat by John Gribben. And there's a new one out by him, too. What's it called? Yeah, uh, Schrodinger's Kittens and the Search for uh, Reality. Schrodinger's Kittens, yes. <laughs> I think it's sort of a follow-up. It's um, Because actually, if you uh, get into quantum mechanics, the, it was uh, first discovered or invented uh, in the late 20s by Niels Bohr and uh, Werner Heisenberg and Schrodinger. And actually, uh, at the time, there were all these paradoxes, and a lot of physicists assume, well, eventually we'll straighten them out, you know. But actually, it's gotten weirder and weirder and weirder, not gotten going back the other way. And I think uh, Schrodinger's Kitten's about more updated yeah, implications. it's a great place to start also. Oh, okay, good. In any case, actually, a couple of years later, I did start reading this. I did get exposed to this. I read a book, at the, uh, a very popular book at the time called The Tao of Physics, and uh, that really sort of shook me up. That really means to say, well, gee, wait a minute, what's going on here? So that was an important part of my going on a spiritual path. I think a lot of people, uh, especially today in our culture, do start on a spiritual path by getting interested in truth. What is reality? What is really going on? And they come through this route of... Um, investigating quantum mechanics and, and so forth. I know several physicists, actually, who are very interested now in spirituality be because of their exposure to physics. Now, for some people, I think this passion for truth is enough to motivate them to walk a spiritual path. Uh, one of my teachers, Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf, was trained as a mathematician and a philosopher in the early part of this century. And what drove him to a spiritual path was just this passion for truth. Uh, but for most people, that is not enough. And it certainly probably would not in itself be enough for myself as a younger person. My primary motivation for going on a spiritual path was a growing disillusionment with worldly success. And... In 1979, I mentioned before, this was sort of the height of my career in Hollywood. I just finished my first major Hollywood uh, movie. Uh, I was uh, really enamored of this glamorous lifestyle I was leading. I, I thought it was really fabulous, creative, and so forth. Uh, I had more money than I ever dreamed possible. I bought a new house. I bought a new car. I bought clothes. I could go to any restaurant I wanted to. I didn't have to look at the menu. Even got a little snobby about that if the waiter told you the price of the specials, that was not classy, you know, you, uh, uh, to be in a really fine restaurant, they don't tell you the price of the specials. <laughs> and I believed I was on my way to real happiness. And then this disillusionment began to set in. Uh, first of all, I was married at the time, and my wife was not happy with our Hollywood lifestyle. And I realized, not right then, but that 
I, I believed in love, but I was always afraid of love. That if you love too much, you're going to get hurt. And so all through my life, uh, going, you know, way back, I never really could fully love, and, and part of that caused me a lot of uh, emotional pain in relationships. Uh, and that was part of why my wife and I started to have problems. I had all this money, but the thrill of accumulating possessions began to wear off. My first really new car was a, was an Audi. An Audi's had just come out. That was a fabulous car at the time. And I really loved it for about three months. I mean, every time I'd get in behind the wheel, it had all this uh, upholstered, uh, you know, uh, cushions and everything. And, uh, had all the latest uh, window buttons and the blau plunk stereo. And it's pretty primitive compared to some of the things today. But at the time, it was really, uh, spectacular. But after uh, a few months, I, I stopped uh, getting any thrill out of that. It was just a car. You know, I'd just get in. I, I didn't even notice I was driving it. And I began to realize if I won that thrill back, I had to, you know, go up to something like a Porsche or um, a Mercedes or something, you know. And then I thought, well, the same thing's going to happen. Then what are you going to do? You know, you're going to get, a I don't know, uh, some custom-made car or whatever, you know. And... The glamour started to, uh, the, the, the thrill of that started to wear off. It really turned out to be pretty shallow. Uh, most of the people in, uh, that I made friends with in Hollywood weren't deep friends. It was, it's a business, you know, and everything's business. And so that was not uh, really satisfying. And then uh, I noticed that this was actually true of the people I worked with in Hollywood. Even people had far more money or fame or whatever than I did that uh, it wasn't that they had attained happiness. In fact, they were on this uh, desperate treadmill to keep those thrills going, to buy more, to get more, and it applied to people. So after, you know, six months, a year, your relationship is, yeah, the thrill wears off, get rid of that person, get another person, you know. And uh, often drugs became a, a way of uh, at least deadening the pain. This is amazing. People have millions of dollars are in such pain they're on drugs and they they seem so conditioned by it all i mean they they seem to have blinders on they couldn't see that wait a minute the, the, the getting more and more and more did not get you more and more happiness if anything it, it got you deeper and deeper into your rut so i felt this kind of growing despair because Gee, if this worldly success didn't bring happiness, what would? I mean, I was there in a kind of business a lot of people would like to be in. You know, they think of that. Oh, if, boy, if I could be in Hollywood with all those glamorous people, then I'd really be happy. Well, here I was. So where do you go from here? So then I also began to uh, feel this stirring of an intuition. There must be something more to life than this. I mean, there just must be. This is a kind of faith. But it was not something coming from reading some scripture. It was coming from within. And I think this had always also been kind of true of me, all the way back to childhood, that actually, deep down, I, I believed in things like love and truth and happiness. And part of growing up was, you know, having these beliefs squashed or reality showing you that this couldn't be true. But somehow I still believe, well, where did this come from? Where does this desire for happiness come from if it's not possible? Why do we all human beings have this? So, I began to feel something was missing. 
So if my younger self would hear, I would say to my younger self, well, if you feel like something's missing, why not try to find it? So this worldly path you're on with all the success is not leading to any uh, happiness. In fact, it's creating more and more suffering. So what do you have to lose? And even if you fail to find real happiness, truth, love, and so forth, it'll be a great adventure. It'll be better than this going around to boring Hollywood parties, you know what I mean? Why not try it? What else are you going to do with your life? Why not go for the gold? Well, in fact, several years later, I did. And I, but I think this is really important to understand about why people go on a spiritual path, why people walk a spiritual path. People go on a spiritual path because they are suffering and they want to be happy. And it's true. If your life is going well, if you are as Karen said in her letter, quasi-happy at least. And if your career or your relationships or whatever are on an upswing, you won't have much interest or motivation in going on a spiritual path. We have to learn from experience in the world that the worldly success, even relationships, are not going to bring us complete, total, full happiness. And the difference between a spiritual seeker is someone who has at least lived enough to realize, whoa, wait a minute, uh, this world of worldly success and so forth isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. And they have to really want happiness, and here's the key, and not settle for less. Most people in life will settle for less. My parents settled for less. My parents were quasi-happy. They had rough periods in life and so forth. But overall, I think they had a quasi-happy life. They were willing to settle for less. Now, again, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just trying to explain the psychology, the motivation of a spiritual seeker so that you can understand why your friend is on a spiritual path. Your friend has a deep intuition that real, true happiness is possible and they won't settle for less. And so they start seeking. So then what is a spiritual path? In my definition of a spiritual path, at least the way I use the, the term most of the time in my talks and teachings, and that is really synonymous with a mystical path. So then what is a mystical path? Well, anyone who sincerely tries to practice the teachings of the world's great mystics is walking a mystical path or a spiritual path. But then my younger me might say, well, but then who are the mystics? What are you talking about following the teachings of the mystics? So, who are the mystics? What does that mean? Well, if we examine religions from the outside, the outer forms of religions, uh, all over the world, we see they are quite different. They have different doctrines, they have different rites, rituals, and so forth. Uh, just a one simple example, most Christians believe in a triune God. They have some idea that God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but somehow they're all one, but they're also triune. Muslims and Jews believe in a unitary God. God is one. They reject this Christian idea of a triune God. Hindus believe in multiple manifestations of the divine. 
So Hindus who can have, you know, Shiva and Kali and Vishnu and all sorts of, uh, literally thousands of different manifestations. And they don't see it's a contradiction if one family over here is a follower of Shiva and the other family over here is a follower of uh, Vishnu. That's not a that's not a problem because they're all manifestations of some ultimate divine. And then Buddhists don't believe in any god whatsoever. So this is quite a range of different sorts of beliefs and whatnot. And then the different kinds of prayers and and uh, rites and rituals. But if we look within all these traditions, we find that there are those who claim to have a deeper understanding of their own tradition, who they themselves say, well, most people practice this way and have a rather shallow understanding of the tradition. It serves them well, it's fine, but if you look deeper, there are deeper truths to be found here. And then if we compare these people from these various traditions and what they are teaching in spite of the fact that they're usually teaching within the terminology of their tradition, because they don't know any other terminology, it's the world they grew up in, obviously, if we compare what they're saying, we find a, a really an astonishing intersubjective agreement that crosses boundaries of time and place and culture and religion. And so you begin to say, well, wait a minute. Here's somebody, uh, you know, a Chinese sage from the second century BC. Here's a Christian from the 13th century Christian era. Here's a modern contemporary Hindu, whatever. And how come they're all coming up with the same expressions? And these are the people we call mystics. Mystics are not, by the way, as some people use the term, uh, necessarily interested in things like astrology and clairvoyance and uh, working with crystals. Sometimes mystics is used to cover this great broad category of people who are interested in all sorts of paranormal phenomena and whatnot. So I'm using mystic here in the classical sense, that, that these are people who are recognized historically in their traditions, not, uh, not a lot of New Age kinds of interests, which may or may not be valid or interesting or whatever. But that's not the way I'm using mystics. So, well then the younger me, always being skeptical, would say, well, so what do these mystics agree on if they all have this sort of intersubjective agreement? Well, this is, uh, of course, a vast topic in itself. So all I can do here is try to give you a brief idea. All I can do is try to intrigue you with some comparisons. So I am certainly not giving you the whole ball of wax of what mystics have said, their teachings and whatever. But the first point of agreement among all these mystics is ultimate reality cannot be expressed in words or grasped by thought. Cannot be expressed in words or grasped by thought. For example, the ancient Chinese sage Lao Tzu, who wrote the great classic of Chinese uh, uh, spirituality, the Tao Te Ching, starts by saying, the Tao which can be spoken of is not the true Tao. The Tao is the Chinese word for ultimate reality. So the Tao that you can talk about isn't the true Tao. The 7th century Hindu mystic Shankara says of Brahman, and that's the Hindu word for ultimate reality, Brahman is the reality beyond all thought. It is eternally the same, peerless, outside the range of any mental conceptions. 
Here's the contemporary Jewish scholar Gershom Sholem, and he's writing about the Kabbalist view. The Kabbalists were the mystics of Judaism. The divine being cannot be expressed. All that can be expressed are his symbols. And here's the 9th century Christian mystic Dionysius the Arapagate, writing of God. He says, that one which is beyond all thought is inconceivable by all thought. Interesting. Remember what Nick Herbert said about uh, quantum reality, that in itself it is indescribable by uh, conventional means. That when we uh, go to observe it, we break it up. But unmanifest, in its, as it is in its own right, it is a whole that is indescribable. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The very word mystic derives from a Greek word, mustes, which is the root of moot, like a, a, a mute. So uh, a mystic is mute. A mystic is mute, not because a mystic something's wrong with their vocal cords. They cannot, uh, they cannot speak this truth. Even if they wanted to, they're not hiding some deep, dark secret. It just cannot be put into words. So then the younger me might say, well, why should that be the case, Joel? Well, this again is the second point of agreement between all mystics. Ultimate reality is non-dual. No duality in it. And the closest we can come is to describe it by words like mind or spirit or consciousness. A mind, spirit, or consciousness that in itself is devoid of forms, attributes, distinctions. So here's a Hindu, uh, Shankara again. Brahman is pure consciousness, eternal bliss, one without a second. In Brahman there is no diversity whatsoever. And the Buddhist Huang Po writes, Buddha is pure mind, which is absolutely without distinctions. It has neither form nor appearance. It does not belong to the categories of things which exist or do not exist, for it transcends all limits, measures, names, traces, and comparisons. And you might say, well, that's, that's all well and good. These are the a Buddhist and a Hindu and, and so forth. But what about these Christian and uh, Jewish and uh, Muslim mystics? They all believe in some sort of God, some sort of supreme being, some big daddy in the sky. Well, here's what the Muslim mystic Abu Bakr says. Although God is said to be all-knowing, merciful, just, etc., the fact that we describe God as having all these attributes in no way bestows any attributes on him. Our description is merely our own attribution. So the idea is when we think about God or, or the ultimate reality, in order to think about it, we have to think about something, but this is not the nature of God. The, God's, the nature of God transcends all that. This is something we project onto that ultimate reality. And here's what the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said. If we will see things truly, they are strangers to everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity and distinction. So this is, this is kind of amazing, isn't it? Here we have a, a Hindu from the 7th century, a Chinese Buddhist, a, uh, a Muslim, a Christian. You could interchange these words. You wouldn't know... Uh, whether it was a Hindu or a, Mr. or a Christian or a Muslim talking here. Astonishing, isn't it? So, the reason ultimate reality can't be grasped by words or thought is that what? Words and thoughts create distinctions in their nature. 
I have here a clock. By naming this clock, I have distinguished it from everything that is not clock. You see what I mean? Just by the act of naming something, the mind has zeroed in, and I distinguish it. Oh, yes, it's not this. If I was speaking uh, another language, and I said, uh, Grub, you don't know what I'm talking about because you don't understand the distinction I'm trying to make here. So I go, Grub, and you look at me puzzled, right? I go, Grub, Grub. Huh, huh, oh, I picked this up. Grub, ah. You can now distinguish. I've, I've named this, I've attached glove to this cup, and now cup is distinguished. Glove is distinguished. Do you see how this works? Just the fact of naming. We cannot uh, describe something that uh, has no distinctions with names or words because they their nature to distinguish. So then, younger me might say, well, if we can't know this ultimate reality through thoughts, through concepts, this beyond concept that transcends measurements and comparisons and all that, how can we know it? Maybe we can't know it at all. And this brings us to the third point of agreement among all mystics. There is another way of knowing, a direct way of knowing, that transcends thought itself. And all these traditions have their own various names for it. Uh, the mystics of these traditions. For instance, Buddhists and Hindus like to call it awakening or enlightenment or realization. Those are at least English translations of terms in Sanskrit and so forth. Here's what the Lakamitara Sutra says. Realization is an exalted state of inner attainment which transcends all dualistic thinking and which is above the mind system with its logic, reasoning, theorizing, and illustrations. Weird. Those Buddhists are pretty weird. They have this idea there's some way of knowing, some kind of thing called realization that's above thinking, above logic, above the mind system. Well, we all know those Buddhists are, you know, especially those Tibetan Buddhists, they were stuck up there in the Himalayas for 10,000 years. They went a little bonkers. <laughs> the Muslims call this Marifa. And here's what Ibn Arabi, a great Muslim writer, says. It is an incontrovertible knowledge which is actualized through unveiling in which man finds in himself. This idea of an unveiling, that somehow our normal ways of knowing, our veiled ways of knowing, actually mediated. They're mediated by our thoughts. So there's another way of knowing that's an unveiling. It's like lifting the veils and a direct, immediate uh, kind of knowing. The Greek word that's used in the Christian Gospels for knowledge, you know, when Jesus says, know the truth and it shall make you free, is gnosis. If you don't know, the Christian Gospels were originally written in Greek, not in Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. And the words that Jesus uses when he talks about knowledge, they are all variations of this root word gnosis. Gnosis in Greek at that time meant a, a knowledge that was transcended thinking knowledge. It was defined as a direct, immediate apprehension of reality. So when Jesus says, know the truth and it'll make you free, he's not talking about any doctrine. A lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians interpret that just, well, that means you have to know that Jesus was the Son of God and some formulas. But he's talking about something that transcends all of that, that you can't put into words. And Christian mystics down through the ages have rediscovered this, and reused it. Here's what Catherine of Genoa, she was a great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages, says, such knowledge does not come through intellect or will. 
As I have said, it comes from God with a rush. So it's something that happens kind of spontaneously. It doesn't, it's not something you think out. So, uh, it's interesting because what this means, and what another point of agreement of all mystics is, that because this truth cannot be communicated in words, cannot be grasped in thoughts, mere belief in some dogma or doctrine is not enough. Only you can have this kind of knowledge. Only you can realize. Only you can have this unveiling. As he says, you find it in yourself. So no teacher can uh, hand you the truth written down on a slip of paper and say, here, just believe this and everything will be fine. It won't do you any good. We start with faith and belief. They're just the kind of faith and belief you need when you want to learn anything. And you go to a teacher to learn physics, and you go into the University of Oregon there, and you walk into a physics class, you don't know anything about physics, there's all this scribble on the blackboard, and the teacher's talking about something you don't know what he's talking about, so you have faith that the teacher knows what he or she is talking about, and what this stuff means in the blackboard, you have to go on that faith for a while, but the idea is eventually that knowledge is going to be your knowledge, you are going to understand for yourself, you're not just always going to take the teacher's word for it, well the exact same thing is true on a mystical path. This is why the anonymous Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing said, you will not really understand all this until your own contemplative experience confirms it. He's writing to one of his students. And then here's how the Hindu Shankara put it. From the lips of your teacher, you have learned of the truth of Brahman as it is revealed in the scriptures. Now you must realize that truth directly and immediately. Then only will your heart be free from any doubt. And this is very important, the difference between a mystical path and perhaps other forms of religion. You have to take these teachings, and you have to take them, as the Buddha said, as fingers pointing to the moon. And don't mistake the finger for the moon. The, the teachings, the words we use, just are pointing the way. And a lot of people do that. They mistake the finger for the moon, they worship the finger or whatever, and they stop short. They settle for less. Don't settle for less. Go for the moon. So my younger me might then say, well, this is all very good to say this, realize this directly in your own heart or whatever, but how do you do that? Well, here's a fourth point of agreement among all these mystics. All of them say you need to have concrete practices. It's not enough to go around mouthing teachings or words or doing incantations or rituals or whatever. There are a set of concrete practices that you need to adopt for yourself, to experiment with, uh, to help you realize this truth. And these practices fall, again, this is a vast topic, but we could say very generally they fall into two fundamental categories. You'll find in all mystical traditions. On the one hand, a whole slew range of practices that fall under the category of meditation. And then there's a whole slew and range of practices that fall under the category of love, compassion, and morality. And so it's the it's working with these two that is what walking a spiritual path is really about. So let's, very briefly here, let's take meditation first. We already said the reason we don't realize the true nature of things is because our own thought processes break up reality, this reality in which there are no distinctions, ultimately, our thoughts impose distinctions on this reality and break it up. And 
so we we see these distinctions, and our problem is we take the distinctions to be real. Now, it's not that the distinctions aren't there in the sense that we don't experience them. It's not that ultimate reality is like, I think Alan Watts once said, pablum, you know, mush. It's a problem of not realizing what's going on here. That we are creating a distinction and we're taking it to be real, and then we are behaving as though it were real. And we can get a little bit of an example of this. We distinguish, for instance, the United States from Canada by a border. You can drive north from here and you'll hit that border and there'll be little fence and little, you know, I don't know, custom gates and so forth. And you will cross the border and there are all sorts of rules and regulations about that. And that's fine. It helps us organize life. The Canadians don't want to live exactly like we. We don't want to live exactly like the Canadians. So we live down here. They live up there and this and that. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no border there. Do you know? The eagle that flies over, looks down the ground, doesn't see any line there. It's imaginary. We project it. And we do run into problems when we start to take it to be absolutely real. And we start fighting over it. And killing ourselves over it. Over something imaginary. Interesting, isn't it? How, how uh, powerful imagination can be. Just another quick example of how a mistaking, a misperception of reality can cause us tremendous suffering. If you go to a doctor tomorrow for your annual physical checkup and the doctor takes some, I don't know, some x-rays. Oh, maybe you complain about a pain in your stomach. The doctor takes some x-rays and the nurse calls you up because they don't make, you know, even phone calls anymore, let alone house calls. The nurse calls you up a few days later and says, this dreadful news for you. It came back. You, your stomach is riddled with cancer. You've got about three months to live. You better get your affairs in order. Just think of the pain, the suffering, the agony that would cause you. And now a, a week goes by, and now the doctor calls because he doesn't want to be sued. And he says, I'm so sorry. We made a mistake. We, we mixed up your x-rays with somebody else's. It just takes some Mylanta. You're fine. But you don't have cancer. Oh, the relief you would feel, right? All something imaginary here. Nothing actually happened. So this is a big clue what mystics say our problem is. So our problem is not the distinctions, but we take them to be real. And these are distinctions imposed by thought. So, the first thing we must do is we must silence thought long enough to get a chance to see reality directly without the intervention of thought. Reality unmediated by thought. And earlier this morning, I asked all of you to engage in a little experiment to try for five minutes uh, not to allow thought to arise, or if it does arise, to simply ignore it and not get carried away by it. You saw how difficult this is to do. We are conditioned, our minds are conditioned to produce this uh, this assembly line of thoughts that pour out and that are constantly telling us what reality is and how should we should react to it and all that. So a fundamental practice in all mystical traditions is some way to find a way to silence thought for a while just so you simply can see reality without the veil of thought. This is why the Buddhist Wang Po says, If you wish to understand, know that a sudden comprehension comes when the mind has been purged of all the clutter of conceptual and discriminatory thought. Now, uh, a very common way to do this in the East is to 
uh, focus on a mantra. Both Buddhists and Hindus use mantra. Mantra is just a name of God or a little phrase that you focus your mind on and so that you can learn to ignore your thoughts. This is what uh, the contemporary Hindu mystic Ananda Moyamaya says about it. She says, as if by compulsion, the mind runs after the gratifications of desires that bring suffering. The mind has become uncontrollable. By the repetition of a divine name or mantra and by meditation, this illness can be cured. This illness of uncontrollable mind. But also Western mystics have used mantra. They don't call it mantra. Mantra is a Sanskrit term. That the same principle is used and discovered by Western mystics. To give you one example, the Christian author of the Cloud of Unknowing writes, Choose a short word rather than a long one. A one-syllable word such as God or love is best. Then fix it in your mind so that it will remain there come what may. Use it to subdue all distractions. Should some thought go on annoying you, demanding to know what you are doing, answer with this one word alone. Do this, and I assure you these thoughts will vanish. Same principle, isn't it? Same principle here. A Christian medieval mystic and a contemporary Hindu mystic. It doesn't have to be a word or a mantra. Uh, different traditions use different things. The Buddhists like to use breath a lot, just focusing on your breath. It could be a visualized image in your mind. It could be actually a painting. Eastern Orthodox Christians often use icons, painted icons. The whole principle, though, is focusing attention, concentrating on one object. And it's a training. It's a mind training. You do this over and over, and pretty soon your attention learns to stay pretty still, become pretty stable. Then thoughts can, even thoughts can be arising, but you're not carried away by them. You're not distracted by them. You don't get involved in some fantasy world. You're staying present with what is going on. And ultimately, you continue to do this practice, and uh, at some point, you become present with that reality immediately. So, meditation is one of the practices that characterizes all mystical paths. The other one, and this is even vaster topic to talk about, and much harder topic to talk about, is this practice of love, compassion, and morality. It's much harder because it has to do with our psychological or psycho-spiritual makeup, and we human beings are tremendously complicated. Uh, but I, again, I'm just going to give you, try to give you a brief idea. Most people are familiar with the Christian emphasis on love and, and moral behavior. Love your neighbors, love your enemies, the Gospels are full of this command to love, and so forth. But this is in other traditions as well. Here's the Buddhist Jamgang Kangtro, a Tibetan Buddhist. He says, The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking complete hold of the welfare of others. Now, Jesus could have said that. You see this again. These are interchangeable. Why do these mystics say this? Well, this dualistic perception of the world, this false perception of the world, is not just intellectual. It is a deeply ingrained psychological habit we have. This is what makes this personal, if you like. This dualism, this misperception affects us fundamentally because we believe, experience ourselves as to be isolated entities. 
some sort of ego, being, soul, body, whatever it is, uh, and this is who we are. And because we experience ourselves this way, A, first of all, we're already born with this fundamental existential loneliness, the sense of being cut off. But more importantly, this arouses in us great fear, because we look around and we see every other object thing we can see has a, a life, a birth, a life, and a death. And it's fragile and impermanent. And so it's, it's here for uh, a day and gone tomorrow. And so we say, well, that's like me. I'm that too. So then our whole lives start to be, well, I, I've got to protect this thing. I've got to ward off death as long as possible. Better not even to think about it. I've got to arrange my life so that uh, I'm invulnerable as much as possible. And so I've got to get all those things that will enhance and protect my life. And I've got to avoid all those things that might threaten and harm my life. And our whole life is built on this dualistic strategy of enhancing and protecting this self and fighting off, warding off anything that might harm it. And then it can get subtle, you know, not always faced with an imminent death, but that is the fundamental premise on which we live our lives. That is a prescription for suffering, guaranteed. Because everything that we do try to hang on to to enhance our life is also impermanent and will fade away. And all the things we want to ward off, especially the biggies, you know, sickness, old age, and death, eventually we can't. So it's futile. So we are trapped in this futile, uh, frustrating, and uh, ultimately horrifying uh, kind of activity. And what the mystics say is that it's just not true. You are not really a some separate entity self. That is not who you really are. This also is a distinction superimposed through thought processes, imagination, so forth, on this reality. And now you've taken it to be real. You've, you've believed your own images. And you've seized upon them, and you're living your life this way. So, instead of our habitual conditioned way of behaving, which is self-centered, selfish, I use that in a technical sense, not that we're bad, evil people, but we relate everything to how it's going to affect me. Is it going to help me or is it going to harm me? Instead of uh, continuing to operate out of this conditioning, if we can break this conditioning somehow, then we can, first of all, learn to experience the world in a, in a different way. And we can also break this cycle of illusion because the more we act based on our self-centeredness, the more it reinforces the illusion that we are some sort of entity. So if we, uh, for instance, practice moral precepts, they're all designed to check our just habitual selfish behavior, at least make us stop and take note. Uh, why am I doing this? This is why Al-Ghazali says, the great Sufi Muslim mystic, the aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of selfish passion and resentment till like a clear mirror, it reflects the light of God. That from a mystic's point of view, moral behavior is not to, to build a better society, not to create a utopia. All that's good. I mean, all that's gravy, and that would happen if everybody was moral. But a mystic would be moral even on a desert island with no other people around. A mystic's being moral 
to learn something about him or herself. A mystic's being immoral by saying, well, supposing I stop behaving selfishly, supposing I'm on this desert island and I see a spider, and instead of just smashing it, I stop for a moment and say, that's harming another sentient being. And then in that, in that moment of stopping, I can throw the light of attention onto the, uh, my behavior. I say, why am I doing this? Well, I'm afraid of spiders. Well, why are you afraid of spiders? And I can start to make this inquiry to who I truly am. Am I some isolated entity? So moral behavior here is not about being good little boys and girls. It's about a way of self-discovery and self-exploration. And it's very important to understand that mystics are not about escaping reality. The mystical path is not about getting away from this reality. It's about looking into this reality to seeing what is its true nature. What is the true nature every moment of your day? Who are you really? And it takes a lot of courage to do this. You have to really face yourself. You have to look inside yourself. And uh, most of people who do this don't like what they see all the time. So this is uh, it takes a tremendous amount of courage, a tremendous amount of strength. So if your friend is on a spiritual path, if you think that all they're doing is trying to get away from reality and spending time in a cave blissing out, that is not true. If they are doing that, they are not on a mystical path. If they're on a mystical path, they are really trying to examine their motives and their interactions with other people and with colleagues and with the whole environment. They're trying to see what these mystics are talking about, that, that I am not really some sort of self-entity, that I'm somehow all this deathless reality. And then checking this selfish behavior through keeping moral precepts starts to open us up to something even greater. And that is the power of love. And everyone, no matter how deluded we are, at some point in their life experiences one power that can override this self-centered conditioning. And that is the power of love. At least love usually makes us at least think of the other person or the other being, even if it's just a pet, at least put their interests somewhat on a par with our own. And so that power is there naturally, inherently in our lives. But we're very ambivalent about love. Once it starts to arise, we suddenly put the reins on and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm going to get hurt here. I can't just uh, ignore my interests. Otherwise, they'll take advantage of me, you know, otherwise this, that. So when we love, we usually are loving with the brakes on. And what we're trying to do here is to learn to let the brakes go and to allow that love to express itself selflessly. Why is love so important in these traditions? Because love is the truth in action. The truth is, from a mystic's point of view, there really is no separate self. And love is living that truth when you are behaving as though there were no separate self. So the more you can cultivate love, compassion, the more you can begin to experience what it might be to let go of this imagined self that we hang on to. And the more you can begin to experience that, the more you can begin to experience that, gee, suffering does not come because something's harming this self or is going to harm this self. Suffering comes from the very act of hanging on to it. I've built a, a, what I think is a fortress around me, and it's really a prison. 
And as Rumi, a great uh, Sufi um, uh, Islamic mystic, said, religion is about opening doors and opening windows. And it's opening the doors and the windows of the prison that you've built around yourself. And love is the light that flows in and flows out. It's all one light. This is why uh, the Tibetan Buddhist, Bokar Rinpoche, says, Without love and compassion, every other practice, no matter how deep it may appear, is not a path to awakening. Essential on a mystical path. Meditation on one hand, love and compassion on the other, and they go together. Meditation is usually something you do alone. Even if you're with a group, you're doing it alone. It's an introspective thing. Love and compassion you do with other people in relationship. They are like, often put, they are like two wings of a bird. A bird cannot fly with only one wing. These are the two wings. So, that's uh, kind of what a... Uh, what a spiritual path is. Just a, a very overview, but those are the essentials. Then finally, my younger self might have said to me, well, he said, you know, even if I attain this enlightenment that everybody talks about, this gnosis, this realization, what good is it? That's a good question. So what good is it? I, I'm going to have to work hard here. Most people do. I'm really going to have to look into myself. I'm going to have to examine my motives. I'm going to have to face a lot of things I don't want to face. All this, I'm going to have to spend time meditating, which can be sometimes boring. A lot of meditation is like doing scales on a piano. It's not all, you know, bliss and happiness. So what good is it at the end? Well, here's the fifth point of agreement among all these mystics. Enlightenment reveals the happiness that is inherent in our true nature, our true identity as this consciousness, spirit, mind, or whatever that underlies everything. We are not some little separate self. We are that reality. That reality that is deathless. The, this form is certainly going to disintegrate and die, but I am not going to die ever. I was never born. Neither were you. Here's what the great Sufi Javad uh, Nurbakash, uh, here's how he explains it. For most people, happiness results from the attainment of desire or the avoidance of unpleasantness. For the Sufi, however, true happiness comes from giving up the self. As long as you are you, you will be miserable and impoverished. But when your self has passed away, you are the beloved. That's a synonym for God, for Allah. You are the beloved, content and fulfilled. And let me just close by reading you some testimonies of other mystics. Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic. Some people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they're here. It's not so. God and I, we are one. Here's a 14th century Hindu mystic, Lali Shwari, and she wrote these beautiful poems. She sings, When the mirror of my mind became clear, I saw that God is not other than me, and this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. I wonder if she ever read Meister Eckhart. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Buddhist nun, Machig Ongjo. Spontaneous liberation is the great bliss itself. It is beginningless beyond name and words. 
This is the bliss of knowing myself as not separate. Shankara, Hindu. The ego has disappeared. I have realized my identity with Brahman. The ocean of Brahman is full of nectar. The treasure I have found there cannot be described in words. My mind fell like a hailstone into the vast expanse of Brahman's ocean. Touching one drop of it, I melted away and became one with Brahman. And then Teresa of Avila, probably one of the greatest of the Christian mystics, she writes, Here it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. Or it is as if a tiny streamlet enters the sea, from which it will find no way of separating itself. Or as if in a room there were two large windows through which the light streamed in. It enters in different places, but it all becomes one. Now, these are people from uh, different times, different places, different cultures, different religions, male, female, young, old. Aren't they all saying the same thing? Maybe they've discovered the same thing. And this is what this mystical path, anyway, is about. This is where it leads. This is where it goes. This is why people walk this. Now, I must say here, my younger self would say, that sounds incredible. Can that really be true? <laughs> and I'd have to answer, I have found it to be so. But the only way you are ever really going to know is if you walk the spiritual path yourself. So uh, I, hope, <laughs> I hope this is going to be valuable for your friends and neighbors uh, who wonder why you're walking a spiritual path if you are. I hope it's going to be valuable for you, even if you're walking a spiritual path. It never hurts to hear the fundamentals reiterated. And uh, if there are any questions or anybody wants to make any comments or share anything, uh, we'll open the floor up to that. I just want to say thank you. You have exceeded my wildest expectations. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you. Thank you. Huh? Well, thank you. Very good. You know, I've, uh, more recently, I don't know if it's Christians, but somebody has been saying, uh, Lord, uh, it, don't not give me problems, but make me strong enough to bear the problems. And then when, when they talk about people being strong, what they're actually talking about are people who have this love and compassion going through them, mm -hmm. and that helps them withstand uh, what we would think of as great suffering. Mm -hmm. so let's pursue that for a moment, because it's very interesting. Uh, if we think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and her sisters of charity who work in the streets of Calcutta, picking up people who are dying and, and literally sometimes covered with vomit, excrement, being eaten by worms. And if we think about what our reaction would be, having to pick somebody like that up and, and put them in an ambulance and take them back to her center there, if you are uh, like me anyway, your initial reaction would be revulsion, disgust, ooh. Don't want to touch this person. Don't want to be around them. The smell, the stench. And there's a beautiful story that she tells, uh, Mother Teresa tells, about one of her young novices who has just gone out for the first time and has been doing this all day and comes back and she says, 
She's glowing, radiant, and she says, Mother, I've been touching the body of Jesus all day. Now, why does she get joy from this and feel it's a, a divine activity, and we, the same thing, and it causes us suffering? It's, the suffering is not out there in the person lying on the pavement. It shows us it has to do with something inside us. Here's the difference. So, do we have to always experience the world as suffering? Do we always have to experience uh, disgusting, unpleasant things as suffering? Or is there a way that we can experience them like this young novice as something beautiful and divine? Yes. Um, in my life, it has almost seemed like the greatest sufferings are brought so that I can learn that there, that that there's nothing to suffer about. That I can go through, you know, years of crying and tearing my hair out and you know, only to learn that, you know, there wasn't anything to hold on to to begin with. And, you know, actually, when you become conscious of that on a spiritual path, already it changes your whole attitude towards life because you can actually start to look at life instead of wanting to avoid all the things that make you suffer, you actually uh, get interested in them. You get this kind of curiosity about them. Mm -hmm. Well, what is this? And you actually can even start to look for it. Mm -hmm. Create them. Yeah. Well, you know, create, create them and then say, "Oh, that's interesting. That's not that bad." <laughs> uh, I, I there are people who do that and who, who will place themselves in positions. Saint Francis was a good example. He went out to serve lepers, and it's very much like we're just talking about. He didn't go out to serve lepers because he loved lepers. He went to serve lepers because he was disgusted and revolted by them. Mm -hmm. And he says, through the process, God transformed his disgust into the purest joy. Mm -hmm. So he actually took that as a practice, you see, to confront that source of suffering and to see that it was in himself and then to be able to transform himself. Mm -hmm. I, I, personally, I mean, life gives us plenty of opportunity to suffer. I don't, know, I don't know we have to go out and look for it that much. But what we do have to do is become aware and instead of just this habitual turning away, be able to turn into it. Mm -hmm. And then just like what you were saying, I, I think most people on a spiritual path would find what you were saying was absolutely true, mm -hmm. that you stop seeing suffering as just something negative. It actually becomes something that you can make positive because you learn from it. Mm -hmm. That's half your life now is already turned around. Instead of trying to run away from it, you now see that it has positive aspects. That's a big change, just, just in that. Um, in terms of dealing with one's children, let's say, you know, where, where in, a, in a certain way, it's a reflection also of oneself of when you're frustrated, when you're attempting something and you're frustrated. So let's say with a child where you want to teach but they're not interested, especially in adolescence, let's say. What's a, what's a good way to work with that? I don't have children, so it's very tough for me to uh, speak to that. <laughs> uh, I can t I'll tell you the advice that St. Augustine's mother got from a local priest in the 3rd century <laughs> North Africa. <laughs> he was a wild teenager running off to Carthage, to the, as he put it, the flesh pots of Carthage. He wasn't the least bit interested in anything spiritual, and his mother was very worried about him. And she went to the local uh, priest, and she said, what, what can I do about him? What can I do about him? And the local priest says, why don't you back off a little bit? Give him a little room. When the time is right, he will uh, he will find his path. Uh, that can often be the case with parents 
who are spiritual and they get overly concerned and overly protective of their kids and you know at a certain point the the fact that that we are all actually god i mean you can think of it this way there's a spark of that divine consciousness in all of us you have tremendous responsibility for your children bringing them up and, and passing on as much as and as best you can what you know about the world and what's right and wrong and all that but there is some point beyond which your responsibility doesn't extend and that point is precisely honoring that person as the individual with their own life to lead, their own path to walk, their own way to find in the world. Do you know what I mean? So, especially if your kids are adolescents, they're pretty much almost out of the nest. You have to say, I've done my best and, you know, let go and be there if they need help, you know, if they need to come back. But start that process of letting go perhaps more. I don't know if that applies to you, but that uh, can be an obstacle in parent-children relationships. Well, it's been a kind of long morning. Why don't we bring it to a close? And you're welcome to hang around and have some tea and check out the library and talk. And until I see you again, peace to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.